The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. This episode is a recording from five years ago. It was made at one of the Wings Over New Zealand forum meets that we held at Wigram back in October 2016. One of the guest speakers was Dennis Jones from Ferrymead, and he gave us a great talk on the restoration of the Lockheed Hudson there at Ferrymead. In the, in the past five years, between when this recording was made and now, when I release it, a lot more work has been done on the Hudson by Dennis and the team, but he's still working on it, and you can see regular updates of all the work that's going on on the Wings Over New Zealand forum Ferrymead thread. Dennis puts up a weekly update on that thread. So here's the original recording from October 2016. So I'd like to introduce our first speaker now, and I'm really pleased to have Dennis Jones, who is working on one of my favourite aircraft, the Lockheed Hudson, um, and he's going to give us a talk about the Hudson project at Ferrymead Aeronautical Society. Um, I visited there yesterday. Uh, really good to see the stuff going on there again, particularly the Mosquito project, uh, which is really quite advanced since the last time I visited there. And yeah, you guys are so lucky to have such great museums in your city, and if you can support um, both of them get it, get involved, and particularly Ferrymead because they're um, a bunch of really good, keen volunteers, and they need more people to to get involved. And um, so, I'd h- highly recommend it, and at least get out there and have a look and and chuck some money in the bucket as well. So, uh, over to Dennis. Thanks, Dave. Okay, um, Lockheed Hudson. Um, I thought I'd start off by just sort of setting a bit of the you know, the history of how we acquired the aircraft. Um, this is a, a photo. Oh, credits to all those people whose photos might pop up here. I've acquired them over the years, and sometimes I can't remember who gave them to me. This one I can acknowledge. This is by courtesy of Neville Mines. And this shows the fuselage of uh, NZ2035 sitting on the Holdaway farm at Blenheim sometime, I would guess, in the late 1960s. Because in the early 1970s, the aircraft was acquired by the loftily named Marlborough Museum of Flight, which, as far as I can find out, was only ever one guy called uh, Warwick Bint. And Bint took the aircraft away from the farm, and uh, it was announced in the media that it was going to be restored to fly, blah, 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 all the usual sort of stuff. 
But strangely enough, for a group that was going to restore an aircraft to fly, they didn't take the fuselage to, to an airfield, to a hangar, or to a factory building where you could do restoration and engineering work. They took it to a residential block of flats in central uh, Blenheim, typical block of flats of the 1960s and that, you know, you had the flats down one side of the section, then you had a driveway and then you had a strip of grass, and so the lucky residents, the other flats, looked at the fuselage and the Hudson sitting on the strip of grass. And Bint, uh, like all good uh, aircraft restorers, the first thing he did was rip into it and he stripped most of the paint off this portion of the uh, fuselage, happily erasing things like the uh, individual letter on the front of the aircraft and that. And then I'm not quite sure why, but he, um, he left uh, Blenheim, um, I think it was to do with occupation, but he also kindly left the aircraft sitting in said block of flats and the Holdaway family had to retrieve the aircraft from there. We heard that they'd actually done that, and so we wrote to one of the two brothers, Lester and Barry Holdaway. We wrote to Barry, and he came back to us very quickly and said, look, you can have the aircraft for what it cost me to get it back to the farm, which was $30. So we quickly found $30 and acquired ourselves NZ2035. So we next had to get it to Christchurch, and um, we knew that air movements had moved the Motat Hudson from Dunedin to Auckland in a C-130, so we wrote to the AOC air movements and said, how would you like to do this for us as a training exercise? And he wrote back very quickly and said, yep, we can do that for you, no probs. You get it to base Woodburn. So myself and Warren Rintel, who was the society president at the time and who was a corporal here at Wigram, raced off up to Blenheim and went and saw the base commander Woodburn and said, look, sir, this is what's happening. Can we make your base untidy by dumping these bits and pieces on the base for the C-130 to collect? And he was, yeah, he said, no problem at all, no problem. And um, we yarned on for a wee bit longer, and then he said, uh, well, how are you going to get it here? And we said, oh, we're just going to go into town and hit up one of the transport companies. And he came back very quickly and said, hang on a sec, picked up the phone, dialed a number, and said to the person at the other end, there are two gentlemen coming to see you, do whatever they need to have done. And said, go down to MT Flight and see the flight lieutenant, will you? So we went off down to MT Flight and uh, we spoke to the flight lieutenant and uh, they took the Coles crane from Woodburn on probably one of the longest journeys that had been for a while <laughs> out to the Holdaway farm and uh, lifted the fuselage. Uh, the observant ones of you who will note that the trees in the background of the shot have changed and that's because the aircraft had been returned to a different farm. The Holdaway brothers had two farms and it uh, had migrated to this one when it came back. So uh, having picked the fuselage up from there, they then went to the original farm where the wings of 2035 plus an additional wing had been used on these um, poles here to make some sort of a shelter and they parked tractors and general junk underneath them. So uh, they were taken on base at uh, Woodburn where they sat and waited for about three weeks and then obligingly Herc 01 rumbled in and uh, after two attempts, they managed to get the fuselage in the um, aircraft. Apparently, they tried to tow it in with the fuselage sitting upright and nearly got it jammed in the doorway. So they <laughs> revised the theory, pulled it out, and uh, flopped her on the side and put her on a pallet. And uh, arrived at Harewood, and of course, this is well before the days of any airport security at the airfield. We no worries here. We all uh, rumbled out onto the hard stand and wandered around <laughs> and helped with the unloading process, basically. Um, and uh, we borrowed this uh, wondrous device here from the uh, US Air Force, uh, I think called a K-loader. And it uh, was, you know, we pulled the Hudson out and then we loaded her onto the truck. And it um, looks like a bit like a beached whale. There's one or two people of interest possibly in this um, 
photo. Uh, obviously having a very nonchalant uh, stare at it, uh, here is, is the, uh, the truck driver from Durham's Transport. For the Air Force people, you might recognise a sometime poster on the forum uh, in the shape of George Jordan Zemus. And uh, here we have uh, well-known Professor Errol Martin and Dave Duxbury, uh, Brian Cox, who was an early AHS member as well. And this gentleman standing in the centre is Major McGaw of the United States Air Force. And he was the detachment commander at uh, Harewood at the time, and he happened to look out the window and see his K-loader and two of his forklifts going across the hard stand. So he thought he'd better come and have a look to see what the hell was going on. And he wandered around and looked at it and said, oh, well, you seem to know what you're doing. And <laughs> so um, the aircraft there is quite interesting. I don't think many people get to see the, the bottom of a Hudson quite like that. Um, there she is. And so she uh, migrated to Ferrymead. Now, I'm not sure whose photograph that is. Apologies to anybody. Where it sat outside for quite a while. In the background, you can see the first stage of our uh, workshop that we were building at the time. And um, she put up with a bit there, including... Uh, a winter storm at Ferrymead where she went on a wee bit of a wander, but um, you can still see how the weather was in the background there. However, the next thing was that we needed to find centre sections for the aircraft, and so we publicised in the news media that we were looking for centre sections, and um, I was sitting quietly at home one night, about half past nine, rat-a-tat-tat on the front door, and I opened the door, and here was this apparition I'd never seen in my life before, and it turned out to be Warwick Bint. And uh, he said, look, um, this is who I am, but that's not important. The name and address on this piece of paper is because this gentleman has Hudson Centre sections. And he came and had a bit of a yarn and then disappeared, never to be seen in my life to this date again. But we wrote to the name and address on the uh, piece of paper and it was a delightful chap called Angus Cameron of Dunback Central Otago. Angus wrote back and said, yes, I've got Hudson Centre sections here. Uh, you're more than welcome to them. Um, but I've got to tell you, one is uh, out back under the pine trees and the other one's buried in my cesspool. So we went down to uh, Dunback one uh, Anzac weekend and uh, we dug up a central Otago cesspool. I'll do that once and once only, thank you very much. <laughs> but um, we got the, the other centre section out of it. Very fortunately, it was only buried about yay far below the ground and it was on top of everything, so it hadn't suffered as badly as it could have. And... Um, this kind gentleman brought his Land Rover down and uh, we picked up, this is the centre section here that was above ground, <laughs> and uh, the wing that Angus had there, he, he was a bit vague about what had happened to the rest of his, um, his Hudson stuff, and um, including uh, one of the wing flaps, because one of the neighbours came down and said, it's on my farm, it washed down the stream in a storm about ten years ago, <laughs> so we went and got that as well. But um, out of interest for those, you might not be able to see it properly on the screen, it was 2039. Hudson. And so um, we uh, duly brought those back to, to Ferrymead and uh, we started the restoration process. Now at this point it's probably quite useful to sort of set a bit of a picture around this. Um, the RNZF had 94 Hudsons and they operated the Hudsons for basically around about nine to ten years. And in that time the major activity took place in four years, namely the war years. Now, in those four years, we lost approximately one-third of the fleet in incidents and accidents, and a large number of those were outside New Zealand. So when the aircraft came to be disposed of in the um, 1950s and late uh, 40s at the various disposals, there was potentially 60 aircraft, roughly, to be sold up here in New Zealand. Now, of those... 
again half of them, another 32 or so, were sold off to three scrap dealers. So those aircraft vanished very quickly in the scrapping process. So when it came to the restoration stage, the potential aircraft that had been disposed of in New Zealand numbered about 30. And these have been scattered literally up and down the country, far and wide, from um, disposals in the North Island to disposals as far south as Tyree. So it, it made the, the pool of Hudson material reasonably narrow. And coupled with that is the fact that the Hudsons, although they're an American aircraft, they were not an American military aircraft. Apart from a small number, the United States Army Air Corps hadn't really operated them, and nor had the US Navy. The vast majority of the approximately 3,000 that were built were uh, built for the British in one form or another. So you don't find the equipment in them is not American mill common stuff. A lot of it was what Lockheed had acquired from, uh, from reputable suppliers such as Bendix and that, but it wasn't the norm for the American military. And when you look at uh, what we subsequently had here with the Kitty Hawks and the Venturas and the Corsairs and that, you got common equipment running across more than one type, and hence was vast amounts of that equipment floating around in the country. A B-10 Compass, for example, virtually every one of those aforementioned types had one, so they were as common as. But there are instruments and things in the Hudson and other items of equipment that were unique. So going back to my figure, there were approximately 30 of some of these items in the country at very best to be had from the disposal times because a lot of the aircraft that were disposed of had already been partially reduced to produce by the RNZAF as well uh, when they were put into store or whilst they were in storage. And a lot of them had undergone various modifications for different tasks post their operational service. So it's something to, uh, to bear in mind about um, you know, why is the Hudson restorations take so long and why are they so damn difficult. And here's the one. This is the centre section that we extricated from the cesspool uh, and slinging it onto the aircraft. Now, one good thing that Vint had done was he had written to Lockheed and he'd asked them about the centre section reconnection thing. Lockheed came back, and I think this is partly why his Marlborough Museum of Flight uh, Ambitions failed. The letter which he gave me the copy of, paragraph one, basically says, forget flying. And it goes on to state that to fly the Hudson again, um, you would have to build a new centre section from this point here to the point on the port side, and that just wasn't going to happen. But having said that, Lockheed were brilliant. They sent pages from the specific repair manual, they, spent, they sent copies of blueprint pages, and they uh, had a covering letter. And the repair that came from the specific repair manual was for a damage to a centre section to a beam of the centre section, and there's a, there are two beams, top and bottom, and it was for a damage not more than 30% of the beam and no more than 18 inches from the centre line of the aircraft. Well, this thing had 100% on both beams, top and bottom, both sides of the aircraft, and approximately three feet from the centre line. So you can see why they said it ain't going to fly again. So having said that, they um, told us how to uh, put the uh, centre section together. And so here it was uh, going on. The next problem was that we had to... Um, reclad where the centre section had got damaged, where it had been cut off the aircraft. And the underskin of the centre section is a particular corrugated effect 
as you can see here, it's not a double circle corrugation, it's got a flat piece so the rivets can be attached. And fortunately, um, Angus's extra wing from uh, Dunbat came into play here, and um, very zealous trio completely disassembled a Hudson wing to get the uh, centre section material out of it because it's just not commercially available. Okay, and uh, that's a rather um, poor shot uh, to show you the, um, the technique for lying on your back in the centre of the aircraft, doing dozens and dozens of nuts and bolts into the centre section to um, attach the outboard centre sections. Now the time has come to talk about colour. I'm sure that a lot of you know that the um, RNZ have repainted the Hudsons and other aircraft in New Zealand-based paints in the famous Pacific blue-grey colour scheme. But what a lot of people don't seem to know is they also repainted the insides of some of them, in particular the Hudsons. And uh, again, they used a New Zealand paint. And it's got the characteristic that by the time we got to the aircraft, it's gone off to this very, very blue shade that you see up here. But you can also probably just make out here this little blob. There was a, a decal error, a stencil, and the RNZF masked around all the stencils in the aircraft and then sprayed the new colour inside and then took the stencils off. So wherever the stencils were, they had the original colour as a backdrop. So you had all these little blobs through the aircraft. And you can see here that the um, New Zealand colour has in many cases just vaporised, it's just gone. And this green that's coming through is the original interior colour that the Hudsons were painted. Now, it's not uh, US Army Air Corps ANA 611, the standard green that they use in Kitty Hawks and like, and it's not Royal Air Force interior grey-green. It's a colour that Lockheed got from somewhere. Heaven knows where. For the technically interested, it is Resine Paint's parsley shade. I can vouch for that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we have matched it to that. And the RNZF only painted from the floor line up and underneath the floor the original colour was in situ so we were able to get a colour swatch from a, a corner which had not been subjected to any degradation and hence matched the colour. And uh, that's what it, it transforms the aircraft into. It's rather interesting colour that um, when you photograph it with um, incandescent light and with a flash you sometimes get this quite um, sort of olivey hue comes through to it. But that's the view of the same portion of the aircraft looking aft after she'd been cleaned and repainted. This is a shot in the Bombay. Uh, for some reason, the RNZ repainted the Bombay in this dark grey, which again, New Zealand-based paint, didn't hang on very well. And um, as you can see, most of it's sort of uh, flaked off there, revealing the original very light um, white grey that the Lockheed had used. And uh, here again, just out of interest for people, the lots of placards dotted through the aircraft, um, showing you know, what bombs could be loaded in the various positions. And then uh, there's the same area, cleaned and repainted. And here it is recently, now that we've got um, various cables and uh, in the foreground, two green support racks that the bomb racks actually mount to. Very complicated system. Those things attach to uh, connecting points in the uh, bomb bay frame, and then you attach your bomb racks to that, and then you attach your bombs to the bomb racks. Don't know why it's quite that complicated. And uh, as you can see here, the aircraft is very much of, a, of an era where everything's fly-by-wire. <laughs> There's just wires for Africa. And we're very, very lucky there because uh, one Saturday some years back, Don Sabritsky, who I'm sure you'll know the name of, uh, was working quietly in his workshop at Albany, and a guy rocked in and said, um, excuse me, mate, um, can you use any parts from Lockheed Hudson's? 
And Don said, no, I can't, but I sure know a guy who can. All right, yeah. And then disappeared, came back a few hours later with boxes of cables and other attendant fittings. And it turns out from three Hudsons. And this uh, chap's father had, ha had access to these three Hudsons somewhere. And he had stripped all those cables. There were pulleys, there were phenolic mounting blocks, there were all sorts of things there. The cables were all coiled up and wired together. They were still covered in grease for the most part. And some of them were even actually from a spears holding somewhere because they had part number tags on them, which made life very interestingly easy. So uh, we're in the process of dealing with all that. Now this is another Neville Mines um, photograph of the aircraft as he saw it at uh, Woodburn. And um, it shows you how, how it was stripped out. You know, there was nothing there in the cockpit. Um, my, one of my biggest annoyances in life is that that uh, control wheel vanished whilst the aircraft was sitting at Woodburn awaiting the Hercules. Some uh, light-fingered sod with access to a toolkit took it apart properly and stole the wheel. <laughs> and I'm still looking for one. And here's the cockpit as it is uh, pretty much now. Um, again, a, a nice piece of, of our aircraft is that it's still got the armoured plate in the seat. Um, the others haven't. So, uh, so having mentioned that um, you know, we had this problem of parts and, and uh, you know, there just weren't parts around, I thought I'd just uh, use this as an example and show you what I mean by this. This is uh, looking at, a, at the floor of the uh, radio operator's bay just after the pilot, and that's um, starboard out there. This uh, unit here is the control unit and distribution unit for the de-icing system for the um, de-icer boots on the leading edge of the wings. Now, if you look, this is a shot of Motat's Hudson, and the, the points of interest are, if you look here, this is looking forward, and there's the same um, distribution unit present in their aircraft. And while we're looking at this, here is a rack for the American Command radio sets that were installed in the aircraft when they went up to the Pacific Islands. And just two other points that we'll keep tabs on. There's a, an electrical box in the corner here, which has got three outlets in it. If we move on, this is the Wigram Hudson, just through the hall there. And you can see when they acquired it, they were up against a bit of a problem. Nothing in the distribution area there. The junction box is also gone. And no rack for the American command set. This is the British TR-9, which we can call the equivalent. And a little bit of the background of this. When uh, the British went to Lockheed and looked at the buying the Hudson, Lockheed had put in a, a radio installation, but the Americans at this stage were still using high frequency for intercommunication. They hadn't graduated to VHF, but the British had. And so the British said, well, we've got the TR-9, we're going to have to have this thing in the aircraft. So there was nowhere to put it in the wireless operator's room. <laughs> it was chocker. And so they got hung on the bulkhead here. Then this is a rather poor shot, unfortunately, the darkness, um, by courtesy of Anthony Galbraith. This is the Smith Reed Hudson. And again, you might just make out that there's, there's nothing in that area where I said about the de-icing equipment. The junction box is up there as well. And then here's a later shot of our aircraft. There's the uh, distribution box. There's all the plumbing that should be present running across the spars. And look, down here is the junction box with three outlets in it in a completely different location in the aircraft.
Now, none of these junction boxes are portrayed in the parts book. You've just got to fly and figure out what's going on. And here's a slightly different shot of the interior of our aircraft. This bunk, which is very prominent here, when the gentleman arrived at uh, Don Sabritsky's, he also bought three of the frames for these bunks. And uh, we've got one obviously now installed in the aircraft. We've uh, since sent one to the Australian War Memorial at Canberra. Dave would have seen it the other week. And I've got a spare there if anyone needs one. And there's a, a closer shot of uh, our aircraft with the TR-9 in it. And um, this box here is the uh, station box, they call them and it enables the guy to wander in and plug in his headset and whatever. And these are peculiar to the Hudsons and to some of the early Venturas because there's a centre switch here which is labelled TR9 or Bendix, enables the person to select to use this radio or the standard um, Hudson feature, we call it, that's in the wireless operator's uh, stack. Uh, just another piece of comparison, this is alongside the pilot uh, this uh, piece here is a hatch which slides backwards and forwards and these are termed the emergency controls of the aircraft. You've got the fire extinguisher control head here, the pull lever that activates that de-icing unit that I was referring to earlier, you've got your uh, fuel priming pump and here are four individual dump valve selectors, one for each fuel cell and sitting over the top of them is another one which you have to pull first before you can pull any one of those four and it opens the vent to dump fuel to the outside world. Now that's the Air Force Museum one. Here is MOTAT's one. It uh, is more complete. It has the um, emergency hydraulic pump and it's got the emergency hydraulic bypass valve in place there. And there's our one. Um, we have the addition of having the handle for the hydraulic um, hand pump. Now those hand pumps were only ever used in Hudson's. So you can see why the Air Force Museum hasn't got one. Um, I don't know. One may turn up for them one day. Now this strange looking beast, now, sorry about the quality of this photograph, is the centre core of Bolton Paul Type C turret that goes on the Hudson. This one um, came to me, hence the quality of the uh, photograph, from Australia. We've been doing quite a bit of interaction with the um, guys that are doing the B-24 at Werribee. And um, one day their society secretary was walking around their store and he saw this and he said to the guys, where the heck did that come from? Recognising what it was, fortunately. And they said, oh, Joker rang up the other day and he said, do you blokes collect the gun turrets from the old aeroplanes? And we said, yeah, we do. Uh, well, if you're here by five o'clock, you can have one, somebody's dipped in me dumpster. And they went to a factory <laughs> in industrial Werribee and uh, there it was sitting on top of what we'd call a waste skip was a Bolton Paul Type C turret in bits. So they gathered it up and took it back to their store. They knew that it wasn't B-24, but they didn't know what the hell it was. So fortunately, Colin Gray, the aforementioned secretary, knew and got in touch and then said, are you still looking for one? And I said, definitely, Colin. So he said, right, just pay the freight. So we freighted it over from Aussie and uh, then subsequently ripped into it. And this portion here is that piece that you saw before, um, refurbed and now inverted as it was in the previous photo. And that's a reasonably recent photo of the, of the turret. Um, still uh, a lot more stuff to go into it yet. There's only about 10 of these turrets known to exist in the world. They're very, very rare beasts. And just an interesting story, we'll just rub it in. Nobody Australian here, is there? Uh, because the turrets were uh, Bolton Paul, and uh, 
they were having production issues, you know, keeping up with uh, all their other turret manufacturer. So when the Aussies wanted them for their Hudsons, uh, they got a licence to produce them. And the Australian Radiator Company of Adelaide was licensed to make these uh, turrets. So they duly did, and they had to pay a royalty back to Bolton Paul. And uh, being Australians, they under-declared the number they actually made. But somehow Bolton Paul <coughs> caught them out, and they had to cough up later in life and make good with the uh, payments. So anyway, uh, when the turret arrived, um, part of it was incomplete. This is the base part of the turret. These are the footrests for the um, gunner's feet, and we're actually looking aft to it now. And this piece was present, hence it's painted, and this was the side that we had to fabricate, and the ammunition canisters go into there and feed out to the guns up through this top portion. So that's now fitted to the turret. Now this one is especially for Dave Duxbury. Um, just following on from the recent thread where you've been talking about the ballast and things in the Hudsons, I suddenly realised when I was going through my photos the other day, Dave, that there is this compartment further aft and there were these large straps in it when I refurbed it. And I'm wondering whether they have relevance to your ballast. And um, it would be a nice place to tuck some ballast. It's right below yeah. the turret. And so we're talking about just using sandbags, of course. Yeah, but they were... Jumped on top. But there the, 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 was a big plate sitting on the turret ring. Yeah. That was on the mm. web page there somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, and I just suddenly so thought... But it was only about half the weight. Mm. You know, the, the sandbags with the fine tuning on Yeah. So it just crossed my mind that we hadn't talked about it because we'd talked about it. And seeing you mentioned, Dave, that's where the toilet is, that black panel is. Nice. <laughs> well, I, I can't figure out what it'd be like because just down below you, uh, you've got the um, ventral gun bath and it comes up and you know, it stands about that high in the... Um, no, no, that, that's, it, that's the other one. And you probably might just make out, that's where the cables that fly-by-wire that I mentioned earlier, the cables come running down the side wall of the aircraft, then in this little compartment here they cross over and they go out and then proceed down the, to the rear and you can just see some of them up here, going up to the um, tailplane. Quite long and tortuous routes some of those cables. That, they, yeah, they, they really are, it's just amazing. Catalina's good it's a then funny wee things. If anyone can identify this for me, I'll be very, very grateful. Um, this little bracket is attached, as you can see, to one of the fuselage frames. This is in the main cabin. And it's just got a, a tag on it, uh, declaring this rack number FT226. Uh, I've been Googling around and looking in manuals, and I cannot find out for the life of me um, what that rack means. Uh, Charles Darby was down at Ferrymead with me some months ago, and I, I showed him that, and he said, I've never heard of that rack perhaps something else unique that was fitted to this Hudson or fitted to some Hudsons, for what purpose. And as there are no um, holes in the frame anywhere nearby which would correspond to that uh, command set rack that I uh, mentioned in the Motad aircraft, I don't think it's anything to do with that. But uh, again... Sorry, James, uh, Western Electric is a maker of radio, is it? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So it's yeah, suspected. Yeah, the, yeah. That's one of the, the things that, um, although you find a, an American radio set, um, it might have a, like a, a, an SCR number or something like that, you can then find that they've got alternative designations, and that alternative one actually tells you who made them for the same set. You know, and there were companies like Bendix and Zenith and Hazeltine and Western, and, and yeah, that's, that's where the things go from. 
So pretty much on my half hour, Dave. Um, that's uh, what we've sort of been up to. If anyone wants to um, ask any questions, you know, ask, feel free. Yeah, just on the interior colour, you know, uh, sprayed it there. Um, painting went blue. Hmm. But you're going back to the original Lockheed colour. Um, when did the Kiwis paint it the colour that went blue? Because wouldn't that not be more um, well, accurate if you painted the Kiwi? Ah, well, see, the, the question is um, are you going to do it in the Pacific colour scheme or are you going to do it in the original colour? And we took the view that everybody at that stage was painting them in Pacific blue grey. So we thought, right, we'll do it in the original um, brown and green as they arrived in the country. Just, just to be a bit different, yeah, yeah. So, um, the o'clock error. Well, um, the advent of three D printing. Do you have any assistance for recreating parts of Yonville? If you've got the blueprints. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure someone might. Ah, now the blueprints. There's an interesting thing. I have um, thirteen thousand digital images of which have been made of microfilm images which some lucky sod at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base uh, post-war in the US made from original blueprint papers that had actually been well used. And he must have been given a microfilm unit and for his sins probably told to go and microfilm all these blueprints. So what he's obviously done is he's thought, well, here are all the nice size ones, shall we say, full scap in those days. So he's done those. And then he's moved through the sizes of pages. And so in some cases, you've got four images to make up one blueprint image. But because he's done them this way, there's no indexing. There's absolutely no way you can find your way around it apart from sitting there and tediously going through it and, and, and stitching it all together. And these are only um, single dimension drawings. So... I was thinking more of Hudson Restoration Group has got a particular part. Oh, yes, Nobody yes. else has got it. Yeah, yeah. It could be duplicated by the Yeah, yeah that'd be the thing. Yeah. Elsewhere. yeah, yeah. Whoops. Um, there are, you know, again, I should, didn't mention, there are 10 Hudsons left in the world. Four are here in New Zealand, three are in Australia, two are in Canada, and one in the UK. And. Um, the likelihood of there are none left in continental USA, of course. They, they just don't know what a Hudson is. They're not really screwed down to them. So, how do they compare to the Lodestar? Uh, the Lodestar is actually quite different, particularly when you get down the back end, uh, because the tail in the Lodestar was actually lifted up, and if you get dipped and put on the top of the fuselage, whereas the Hudson one goes in on the side, and um, the elevators in the, the Hudson one. Uh, run across the back and they're actually um, across the top of the tail cone and there's a gusset affair goes down into the tail cone. Well, they did away with all of that on the Lodestar. Uh, it's got single elevators either side that just go up and down as what you might say normal aircraft do. <laughs> you know? uh, but there are a lot of, of parts there. Uh, I was recently chasing some um, pressure relief valves for the uh, hydraulic bay and um, the chap put them up on... Um, for in, in the States saying that he was, uh, you know, he was actually stripping a lodestar out at, at this age and reducing it to produce. And I negotiated with him for the valves that I wanted and I, we were just organising um, how I was going to get them here and he suddenly came back and said, oh, I've sold the lot and Tamora bought them as spares for their Hudson. So um, you can see, you know, stuff's getting pretty rare.
One of the things, I don't know whether Jamie Croker mentioned it to you, you know, the vast number of Hudsons that they had in Australia and then with uh, Adastra operating them for aerial surveying for years and years, they can't get over the fact there's a dearth of Hudson parts floating around. And the guys say, well, where did they all go? What happened? You know, you yeah, think... The other thing with the old um, Lodester is it's um, from memory 94 inches longer than the fuselage. That, that can't be that. That's a heck of a length. I'd say no, nine I'm inches. Fi no, fi 54 inches, sorry. You're 54 inches. Can't be why it would be that. Yeah. It's... I don't know. That seems a lot, doesn't it? I think it's more than 12 inches. Is it? Oh, I'd say the tail can't be. Oh, yeah, by the time you take the thickness of it into account, it probably is, yeah, but it. But it's it quite a stretch on that Lodestar. Oh, that's a lot. Quite a, quite a. You look at the side by side and it was a completely different out of Ventura's got its. Because one of the things that people were kicking around recently was that if Bill Reed wants to restore the um, Smith Hudson to fly, he, he might get a, um, a Lodestar centre section. And, and do a transplant. I, I wonder if it would work. Yeah. Motat's one's got lodestar centre section. Has it? Ah, okay. Well, well that'll be the full strength of it. Because you know, yeah. the Ventura was about 50% heavier. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. they have to beef it up a bit. Yeah, you know, you're right there. Yeah, no, so, one of the biggest things also the windows on the Hudson, mm. uh, if you need to lodestar, there's, there's a different gap in between the, the mm. windows. Mm. It's quite a bit wider as well. Yeah. So it's with the loads, over uh, the Hudson's windows are a lot closer. Yeah. There's loads are out there out to the right side. So that's not a, that's not a bad yeah. thing. Yeah. So what have, what have you got left uh, to find in terms of oh. the significant, <laughs> significant parts? Uh, um, well, some of them are sort of the miniature, like, um, again, the, the, another bit of a quick story about the B24 Liberator Group. I used to go over to Melbourne quite frequently on business. And um, I'd always arrange it so my business trip was going to start on a Monday and I'd go over there on Saturday and go out to Werribee on Sunday and have a ferret through their stores because they used to get all this interesting stuff arrive in there. And I was there one day and uh, I found three pallets, you know, conventional wooden shipping pallets, and they were about knee-high in assorted hydraulic rams. So I said to the storeman there, do you mind if I sort them out? And, you know, he said, no. Nah. So he got me a whole lot of pallets and I sorted them out. And fortunately there I found half a dozen Hudson undercarriage retraction rams. And so um, he said to me, you know, I said what they were, and he said, you need a couple. And I said, yeah, and he said, how many have we got? And I said, six. And he said, have we got a Hudson? No. Do we need six? No. Take a couple. So I've got the rams, but I haven't got the pivots that they, they go in. And, you know, th those are sort of things that are tricky to find. But as, as you're all saying, with 3D printing, I've got one of those um, things. So I'd be able to make uh, a 3D printer a master and then get them cast from it. Uh, those are sort of things. Uh, like just this week I was looking for, a, um, or chasing up an IFF transponder unit. Found a guy in the States, he's currently put one up on eBay, and uh, by the time we shipped it here it was going to be $1,000 Kiwi. So um, I'm still looking for an IFF yeah. box. <laughs> you know. um, we were just discussing um, yesterday about uh, replica Browning machine guns, for example. I need five um, for the Hudson restoration, and Dag Guest and the boys need four for the Mosquito. So it's just uh, where we go down that path as to what we do about fabricating replicas, probably out of um, fire glass or something like that, 
no need to go down the tortuous path of a metal one and having issues with you know um, certifying it or licensing it for somebody. There's the, there's the British Browning design. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Well, one, one thing that I recall from a young fellow when I first saw Hudson being chopped up, Bits of them, was the uh, fuel tank protection in the, in the big tanks. Integral tanks, and there was very bright orange material seemed to be yep, yep. much in evidence. What, do you know what that's called? It's, it's rubber. I don't know what they call it, um, but it's, uh, it's a, an uncured rubber. Okay, it's a and the idea of it is that that's it there. And it was, it was all along the walls here, you know, amongst all those uh, stringers and things like that. Because I think it was the first aircraft on my to have integral fuel tanks. Yep, yep. And as, as did the Buffalo, yep. funny enough. Yep. And the idea was because it was uncured when the bullet went through, it dragged the tail through and sealed the hole as it went through. And I've still got a chunk which I keep under a workbench out of sunlight and it's still pliable today. Uh, uh, my memory is a really bright orange. Yeah, yeah, it is that. That's gone slightly browny with the, the yeah. dirt and. Yeah. Mm, yeah, and it was quite thick too. It was about oh, three eighths of an inch. Later on, like in the Ventura tanks, they had layers of cured and uncured rubber. Yep. About five or six bars of it yeah. to the same jewel. Yeah, no, that's um, that was another outfit, and it, getting it off the the Dural surfaces was just terrible. <laughs> you know, but uh, another one of the things we had to do. Oh, just uh, this thing about the, the, oh, no, the nightmare, the nightmare you to have of those babies, especially the ones that weren't marked. Yeah. Um, so I suppose the parts manuals came to the fore there, but I was yeah. wondering because you get a really long cable and a couple of short ones, you'd be going, yeah. how do these go? Yeah, they are, yeah, yeah exactly so. And um, the, they come in a, a three different um, sizes of cable, and the longest one that I know of is 504 inches long. <laughs> it's a hell of a cable, yeah. And um, you know, you know, they're, they're joined together um, by turnbuckles, which are brass. And fortunately, um, years ago, a guy came in and gave me heaps and heaps of turnbuckles. And that that problem is the ends. In some cases, we've got cables that have had one end chopped off them. And of course, that a shortens the cable, but b where do you get the ends? Um, and we've had to um, sort of compromise a wee bit. The, the original ones, the, the original fitting straight out of the factory, they stick the cable in and then they swage the end down and crimp it. So what we've resorted to doing is where we've got them and they've been cut off um, cables, we cut a very coarse pitch thread onto the outside of that stem that we're left with and then we've got a bit of stainless tube uh, which is just the right uh, diameter and we've cut another coarse thread into that, put it on and then we've um, used solder, filled them with solder and um, plunged the cable in. And strangely enough, some of the cables that I got in that trove from up at Auckland, the RNZAF have repaired them in pretty much the same way. They've put a nut on the end of the um, swaged uh, fairing, and they've soldered the cable into that. So I feel I'm reasonably legitimate in what yeah. I've done. <laughs> <laughs> and nobody's going to see it. <coughs> so there you are, folks. Hope I haven't bored you, silly. Um, if you're interested, come see us sometime. Thank you very much, Dennis. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.